Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you, my fellow co-ghost John, aka at the Lit Crit Guy. How are you doing on this fine day? A uh, special investigative podcaster, the Lit Crit Guy, uh, signing on uh, here for another session, uh, and I'm feeling good. How about you? Uh, doing, doing, doing good, doing good. I just uh, rode up on my motorcycle with my like little uh, Sherpa collar leather jacket, and I'm ready to record an episode on uh, David Lynch and Mark Frost's Twin Peaks. This is episode three of our Twin Peaks retrospective, aka episode two, Zen or the Art or the Zen or the Skill to Catch a Killer. Uh, yep, we are. We're probably going to have to explain this a lot, but the numbering system for Twin Peaks is very, very irritating. <laughs> Extremely. <laughs> oh dear. So uh, this is episode two, which is episode three if you count the pilot, which is actually episode one. It's Twi- Twin Peaks is staying confusing. They're they're using some weird CCRU numerology on their episodes that I just don't understand. I mean, I I think that's really the only explanation. That's really the only explanation. So I think that I think there's a lot of a lot of things to discuss in Zen or the skill to catch a killer. I think this is one of the th- this for me is where Twin Peaks starts to kind of like become what everybody knows of as Twin Peaks. This is this is where things start to get really strange. Well, I mean, this is this is this is where we have the kind of like memetically referenced moments start to mm-hmm. emerge, right? Um, the first of um, uh, the the dream sequences. Uh, you have a lot of very weird. There's a lot of weird stuff about dreams in this episode. Um, yes, which which I think we will have to get into. But yeah, this is where it. This is where this is where it's like, mm, yeah, it's like the chef's kiss. This is the vintage Twin Peaks that you might have been expecting starts to arrive on the scene. Mm-hmm. Oh, abs- absolutely. Like, this is this is grade A Twin Peaks. And I think, for me, you know, I'm, I always want to start with the Log Lady's pricey before each episode, uh, because I feel a natural connection there. Of course, of course. So, in, 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 in lead in us one, in. The, <laughs> lead us into the episode, Log Lady. Uh, so, so, in this one, the, the, you know, the Log Lady is kind of... Talking, so she says, uh, sometimes ideas like men jump up and say hello, you know, and then she begins to talk about how, you know, ideas can arrive in the form of a dream. And and I think is something really interesting is going on there because her, her dialogue is stressing this interesting boundary. We usually have a very clean sense of separation from our dreams. You know, they're they're ephemeral, they're nocturnal, they're they're being conducted by a different part of our minds. There there there's some very clean and easy ways to separate ourselves from them. But what the log lady's doing here is she's either anthropomorphizing thoughts and dreams, she's adding human qualities to this very human activity, or she's and I couldn't think of a good way to phrase this, she's hypnotizing us. You know, she, she's making us in the shape of ideas and dreams. What are some of your thoughts about the Log Lady's intro here? Well, I think this depends on how um, 
how Freudian you want to be. <laughs> and, and I mean that in the kind of technical sense of like how how much do you want to take from the Freudian or psychoanalytic model of dreams um, mm-hmm. and how much, which, because there, there's, a, there's an interesting contrast that we can draw, right? So you have, the, you have what Ernst Bloch calls the, 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 the dreams at night, which are mm-hmm. self, self-recursive and are um, kind of inward focused. They're about kind of sorting through our own mind, as it were. But you also have the dreams of the day. Uh, and this is the dreams that the log lady is describing. Uh, the dreams of the day are uh, things which are oriented towards the future. They are, in a sense, a kind of revelation of something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's those dreams which are the ones this show kind of ha- this episode specifically i think revolves around i i, I completely agree and there's, there's also i think a troubling agential quality to both nocturnal and daytime dreaming you know there there is in a sense this way of dreams to have their own lives separate and often against the lives that we wish to have you know like the, that kind of revelatory rupture that you were just talking about, you know, the, the way that dreams just crack through the surface that that can often be in spite of what we consciously wish for. And I think that that creates a troubling multiplicity, right? You, you, often when we talk about, Oh, I contain multitudes. I'm a multiplicity, you know, we're, we're internally, you know, heterogeneous that, that is, in an anthropomorphized way, right? Like that, that is in a, a very classical egotistical way, right? All of those things are sharpened and unidirectional, but, but then you have dreams and even daydreams, right? They, they wander and they live outside themselves and like they, they can be a source of guilt or pain, but they're always a source of a rupture and kind of a placid surface of the self. Well, I think it's because people don't necessarily want to take seriously the idea of the multiplicity, multiplicity of subjectivity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, I contain multitudes, but those multitudes are not cohesive necessarily, right? They're mm-hmm. contradictory, antagonistic even. I, I, I mean, this is Ernst Bloch's famous book, The Principle of Hope, was originally going to be titled Dreams of a Better Life. Uh, daydreams of, 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 are future-oriented. They're about the possibility of things that could come into being. Oh, absolutely. And like, I think David Lynch has even brought this up in interviews, you know, where people ask him about his dreams and he kind of discounts nighttime dreaming in favor of daydreaming. Yeah, precisely. Precisely. Uh, basically, what we're saying is that uh, David Lynch has read Ernst Block. <laughs> <laughs> would, would and would not shock me. I contain multitudes in that I would both be shocked and unshocked by that. So uh, something that I often uh, have involuntary nighttime dreams of are the Horn Brothers eating sandwiches. Uh, what, a, what a great character introduction for such an unbelievable piece of shit. <laughs> like, like there's something almost kind of cartoonish about the Horn Brothers, isn't there? Like, there's, something, there's something where mm-hmm. they, ha- they, have this, they have this kind of like manic quality to them, this kind of hyperkinesis what what do you think about that introductory scene i couldn't agree more with with like the shape of your analysis they're 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 so large 
in, in their presence, right? Like, and, and I think that that weirdly has always for me drawn the Horn brothers in conversation with the kind of phantasmal elements of Twin Peaks, um, especially Jerry Horn in, in a weird way, right? Like a lot of the characters in Twin Peaks are very like, e- even the ones that are violent and vulgar and cruel, they're very like organic and subdued. In, in a certain way, right? Like they're 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 very resting in in who they are and the kind of path that they're walking. And then and then you have characters that are like, like Coop is an extremely loud character in his eccentricity. Everyone in the lodge is extremely loud and and on so many levels. And and then you have the Horn Brothers and they're just like, they're, they're, there's this kind of like violently unrestricted hedonism. That, that, that they have this hedonism that that has like totally embraced capital P power, patriarchal violence, capitalistic violence. You know, they 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 feel like characters out of like some some Greco-Roman play about two two minor lords who are about to be struck down by Zeus for their hubris. I but I also think that they are they're set up as like figures of the the they're part of the punchline. Right, mm-hmm. where where he's like, oh, try the sandwich, and they both sit there like just like shoveling these French baguettes into their mouths. So, like they look ridiculous, they look and they sound ridiculous, and that's entirely deliberate. Um, oh, oh, it, yeah, absolutely. So it's like they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not just these kind of like hedonist, um, at, like they're, they're also they're also kind of simultaneously they're simultaneously both powerful and deeply pathetic. Um, yes, which is why this episode, uh, more perhaps than the previous two, is also one of the funniest. Oh, I'll agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely agree with that assessment of the Horn Brothers as being this like just they're, they're, this is pathetic, depressing in a way. Like, like their excess, the way that that lines up and shapes them. They're the, the the butt of a joke, but it's very much a piece of like black comedy, right? Like they're very much. There, there, there's something morose and mournful about them too like because the line there, there's like a line that always like makes my skin crawl a bit and like it's it's uh, uh ben ben and jerry the, I, I you can't refer to the horn brothers yeah, as ben and jerry yeah, because do, that changes the context do you get it do, do you get it <laughs> there's a there, there's a joke in there somewhere um yeah, but when Ben and Jerry's ice cream is eating the the like weirdo imported sandwiches that they're just just shoveling into their faces, they start making these like really crass, perverted comments about some women uh, that they had in quotes encountered once, and it's it's all in front of like Benjamin Horn's family in the middle of this like awkward and pained conversation, and like it just gets steamrolled by like. Oh man, this this vulgar sandwich. Cons- I feel like that's a Zizek comment that doesn't exist. This vulgar sandwich consumption. Well, it's it it it's a very good example of like what what Lynch uh, kind of argues is uh, exists within the constructs of the you know apparently Rockwellian nuclear family. Right? It's this it's this scene of kind of pained, dignified manner. Um, and then you have this kind of libidinal excess that's just sort of teeming away. Uh, you know, the entire, in a way, the entire show is about taking the the very almost formulaic social gestures of American bourgeois 
small town existence and just blowing them up. Oh yeah, and I think I think like there's a really powerful distinction that also happens in this episode, right? Because we get this contrast between the Horn family and the Hayward family. You know, and so the 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 Horn family is like it, it reminds me of some of those passages in Monsters of the Market that talked about how the building of economic wealth generates a negative psychic heat that perpetuates one's own rot on a spiritual level. And uh, from the outside looking in, the Horns would be the best family in town, right? Benjamin Horn, a massively successful businessman. They they live in opulence, you know, like they're the picture of the successful American business family. And then like, but once we once we pull back the curtain, when Lynch lets us look into the mechanics of their family, there's this like spiritually corrosive perversion that's just gnawing at each and every one of them and letting them all like fall freely into this abyss and then the hayward family you know like by by today's standards especially they're living incredibly comfortably but nevertheless they are a working class family um especially at the time period that the show's roughly attempting to depict and like they're they're like wholesome supportive calm you know like like focused on nurturing and I think that there, there's a compelling class antagonism that unrolls in uh, episode uh, two slash three. I mean, again, this is always part of it, right? The, the external realities, you know, the rich portray themselves as, you know, dignified and successful and the, 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 the top of the merit, meritocratic pile because they exemplify the kind of best set of sort of values in the non-economic as well as the economic sense. But like, what's sort of so refreshing is that Lynch just isn't convinced by any of that, um, and and quite rightly mm-hmm. exposes it as a kind of joke through this through the device of the the hedonistic sandwich. Um, <laughs> and and speaking of hedonistic sandwiches, if you would like to support us as we try to sustain <laughs> our fragile podcasting bodies uh, by importing the <laughs> finest of French cheeses. You can do that for just a few dollars a month over at patreon.com slash horrorvanguard where you get early access, bonus episodes, and membership to the HV Crypt, the spookiest Discord server on the podcasting left. Back to the show. That was was one of the best (laughs) we've ever done. Really supporting our show is putting a sandwich in our hands. Absolutely. Like, very practically. (laughs) (laughs) And so one thing, one thing that I really love here is that like, it it kind of occurs to me now in conversation with you that the log lady is offering us a really Zizekian analysis of what's going on here. Because what is not a dream that can take the form of a man other than ideology? You know, like the, the, the horns are not just a family, they're, they're a fictitious construct, right? They're, they are the pillar of capitalistic ideology in real form. So something that is completely internally hollowed out by its own rust and corrosion, but externally is meant to be revered to the point of worship. And and I think that that, that's another uninterrogated dream, right? That's this kind of collective unconscious shared dream state that we all live in, right? Walking around kind of deferring to our social betters, whether that's literally in the case of when you have to take your boss's shit just to keep your job. Or that's figuratively in the sense that, you, you know, like we live in a society that's that's willing to let that's willing to strip mine mountains in Kentucky to perpetuate flooding eternal that, that lets COVID run rampant 
you know, we, uh, we, we can come up with examples of this eternal. Yeah, precisely, precisely. But what that, to, to kind of undo this kind of ideological mystification, what you need is kind of ways of thinking that will help break you out of it. And given, given what you just said, maybe that sheds more light on, uh, on the role and function of dreaming specifically in this episode. Yes. Here we go. Um, so, oh, go on. What are your thoughts about Tibet? <laughs> <laughs> well, allow me to pull down a an extremely large and comically oversized map so I can point to you where Tibet is located. Um, well, Dale 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 Cooper, uh, Agent Coop, has has some very poignant ideas about the politics of Tibet as they relate to China. Um, but I think that's that's a separate issue from our focus on the dream state here. So th through the course of this episode, uh, Cooper realizes in a dream how to find the killer. He has this elaborate ritual that involves writing writing names on a chalkboard, having the sheriff say the names to him. And then he throws a rock at a bottle, and then based on how hard the rock hits the bottle, it, it determines the proximity of an individual to the murder. Y yes, yes. Um, <laughs> this is a little hard to describe. What do you what do you think about this? What do you think about this? How do how do we make sense of this? So, um, I think there's kind of like several things to dissect in this. Um, the thing the thing that I would want to look at uh, in relation to that scene is kind of to to bring that in context with the rest of the episode. Like, what is Dale doing? Yeah, or what is Coop doing on like a very material level like like kind of like what is happening here and that's he's he's bringing the dream back into reality right he is he is the the first of the characters in this show that's willing to like openly interrogate the the kind of material seriousness of the dream space and not dismiss it as something ephemeral and other and kind of outside of the bounds of normal society he just unflinchingly brings it in and I think that, that that's extremely poignant in, in a show or in an episode specifically where the B-plot is the psychic heat death of the family that owns most of the town. I mean, what are your thoughts? There's, there's something else at work here which I think is important, which is about a certain kind of way of knowing or way of understanding what crime is. Mm. So in typical modes of, of detection you identify the one agential party. You identify the guilty person. Coop doesn't seem particularly... Well, it doesn't seem particularly interested in just doing that. Because that's not what this method is designed to do, right? This method is designed to uncover the kind of psychic reality of the town itself. Crime is symptomatic of something, Right. Crime itself, or oh, it's such a good point. Murder is murder itself is 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 obviously horrific and horrible, and yes, you have to find the person who who committed the crime. But actually, murder is symptomatic of something. It's symptomatic of kind of like a deeper miasmatic field through which the entire social formation of the town moves. And so, the way that you tap into that is through dream logic, is through kind of revelatory knowledge. Right, because you're not just trying to understand 
you're not just trying to solve the you know solve the equation to find the acting agent who did x you're trying to understand mm. how x was even produced in the first place yeah oh absolutely that is such a brilliant way of of analyzing uh agent coop's mystic divination for the killer like like to recognize the inherently interconnected nature of this as well as the kind of networked revelatory potential of dreams because dreams are never like isolated right like they are they are free associations done by parts of our mind that that you know for better or for worse stay away from our conscious aspects there's a, there's a disinhibition with that well, this this probably brings us on to talking about the dream sequence. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's talk about the lodge, because if if you um, unless you watched the version of the pilot that was actually made for TV movie that contains extra scenes, which includes the lodge, this is the first time where we really get to meet the lodge and our our lodge citizens. Yes. So how would you how would you describe this? So this is this I, I think is part of the the beauty of Twin Peaks, right? Because so so like like Lynch as as kind of a creative, right, loves to be open to kind of open ended metaphors in the dream and not having to pin himself down to singular meanings. And you know, like in our first episode on this, you know, we talked all about this, how this isn't a prescriptive. We're not here to solve Twin Peaks. We're here to get lost, just like everyone else. And I think that when I watch this, when I watch this dream sequence, right, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn in to the, how do I want to say this? There, there, there's a direct reality of the dream sequence that is extremely like, almost like anti-real. It's not, it's not weird in the sense that Lovecraftian weird fiction attempts to confront us with this erupting strangeness that, that can't be ignored. This is, this is like outstandingly subtle, outstandingly calm, but at the same time, everything is just shifted just a little bit in one direction. And that, I think, is kind of the beauty of using, like, because again, in this episode, we've got like this little like triphasic thing with dreams going on by the time we get to the end we have we have the horn family hiding behind the dream that is ideology we've got cooper using this kind of uh, you know like dr dream hermeneutic to to realize that crime is like socially constructed and socially bound in a network and then you get this passage into a like dream dimension into a total dream state that that is nevertheless like the thing that is needed to to solve the immediate material problems that Cooper is facing. Yeah, everything is connected, right? The 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 this is in a way this is a kind of um, a really interesting cosmology, a really interesting philosophical understanding of like what knowledge is. Knowledge like mm -hmm. to solve a problem is not to kind of um, is not to kind of have like a discrete slice of knowledge to to understand the murder of. That, that started the show, you have to understand the entire community and everything is connected. Everything is connected. Uh, but this can only be understood kind of like orthogonally, right? You have to sort of approach it obliquely because if you do it in a mm -hmm. too direct way, you end up, uh, you would end up with a show that would be kind of like almost unwatchable. Um, so, you can read the, you can read the Lodge perfectly literally as a kind of dimensional problem, as a kind of um, ontolog ontological yeah. or even panpsychist issue 
you can uh or you can read it kind of uh metaphorically as a as about the kind of layers of consciousness that human subjectivity operates within yeah, there's such a phenomenal phenomenal way to look at the lodge and i think that one of the beauties of this is that th- through this episode we also find out that there's a lot of people in the town that kind of maybe not to the intimacy that Cooper now does, but a lot of people here know that there's something in the woods that's just not quite right. Yes, there's, there is, there is, there's an, there's a, a focalized point of kind of evil that people just sort of know about. And it becomes one of those things which is just unspoken. So do you, do you want to talk about them for a minute? The Bookhouse Boys? Uh, yes. Should we talk about the, 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 vig- the, the, the Avengers of Twin Peaks? The- <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh my God. Like, so, oh my God. So a, a few years back, I found a god and I severed an arm that had a tattoo on it that went on to become its own killing spiritual entity. And I just felt him in immense pain when you said Twin Peaks Avengers. <laughs> Um, well, I, I, I think it's Ooh. I think it's a super interesting idea, but and it ties into again something super old in the American cultural imagination, which is just like the vigilante gang, right? The law itself, in certain spots in America, doesn't operate in an explicit way, right? Because so much of America, socially, politically, philosophically, depends upon these things which are never spoken about, right? There is, yeah. If if America is a place, there is evil in the woods, right? There is there is there is evil in all of it, and it's an evil that's never spoken about, it's never acknowledged, and it's so like there are certain places where the law just doesn't, or not even doesn't go, but can't go, and that's why you have things like the 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 outlaw gang, or you have the vigilante hero who arrives into town, or you have like mm-hmm. the the you know the posse you you round up a posse and you kind of solve the problem yourself because the external law capital l law uh can't deal with it what wh- what do you think i i think that this is one of the most interesting things that's going on here because i think that this is the episode where lynch and frost kind of put their foot down and or not put their foot down that that's a bit too dramatic but but this is the episode where they really make a statement about this show as it relates to copaganda. Cause I think, I think twin peaks up until this point ran the risk of hero cops, hero sheriff, you know, wrangling the criminals of their town, you know, in, in a very like cliched, almost Western way. <clears throat> but with, with this, I think we see like, like there's like a founding tension to, to the cultural project that is the United States of America and that is simultaneously a total reverence and honest, direct worship of, you know, the state's unilateral access to violence, right? Hero cops uh, praising the military at every possible public event, being unable to, to lower police or military funding in the slightest because that is borderline blasphemy. But at the same time, it also inherent to, to a lot of these founding mythologies is a total rejection of of governance and capital L law and centralized power and and all of these other things that that creates this total discordance and here we see that in Twin Peaks, you know we 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 even have the law officers themselves recognizing that their their trade and profession is insufficient 
for solving the world's problems. Yeah, you, you have to have the kind of revealed knowledge of your free associative psychic powers rather than any kind of like it's very notable that you you know what the, the character who comes off the worst in this opening sections of the show is like the really icky fbi science guy who, mm-hmm. who hates them all and thinks they're all kind of like backward yokels and you know he's the one who's there to provide the answers but the longer he's on screen the more you realize he, he can't provide any answers really Oh, ab- absolutely. And I think, you know, you know, with his character, I was thinking so much of Carol Clover's analysis of I Spit on Your Grave, and, and specifically the idea that there is this kind of the city has an impulse to enact violence on the, the kind of metaphysic entity that is the countryside. You know, like like he he is very much this kind of emblematic figure for the the concentration of class signifiers that comes with like you know the the elite individual from the urban core you know being totally dismissive and and loathsome of the suburbs he's the, he's the equivalent of like those liberal politicians on twitter that post things like oh well if southerners didn't want to be beaten to death regularly they would vote blue no matter who yeah absolutely absolutely uh, at the very least, he deserves is a punch in the face. <laughs> <laughs> the very least, and and I think I think again because now now Agent Coop has to resist the machinations of the central office, right? Because now he's he's in conflict with this guy who's kind of an emblem of the the, the centralized access to violence that is law enforcement. And I think that this show doesn't come down on a on a clean answer, right? Coop never says a cab. But it it does start to stress and strain against the boundaries. It does provide openings to have these conversations. Well, um, well, and, and it's to like recognize the inherent. Oh, it exposes on. the limitations of like what 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 do the police do? What does it mean to try and mm-hmm. what does it mean to try and solve a crime? And you go, well, you arrest the person. Yeah, the show is like, well, that's completely insufficient. That's that's in in fact that's maybe worse than doing mm-hmm. nothing. Because even because even if you're not there, communities can organize their own ways of trying to deal with the 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 the, the psychic metaphysical evil that dwells within the ontological incompleteness of all human subjectivity. <laughs> that is the that is the best way I have ever heard that phrase. That was fantastic. Uh, but we we are we are past past the limit of our mortal powers on this, the third episode of our Twin Peaks retrospective, the first season of our Twin Peaks retrospective, future seasons forthcoming. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts or commentary for our audience? It's a great, this is a great episode. This really feels like the show kind of like it's established itself now and it starts making some just massive swings. And I think all of them pay off. This is, this is maybe in terms of just, everything really starting to sing. I think this is the best episode so far. Oh, I totally agree. I think my only, my only outgoing comment would be kind of an open-ended question for our listeners. And that's this, this is the episode where we really start to see sex work become a, a prominent kind of like tentpole feature of the Twin Peaks landscape. And, and I would say, I would ask how, how is it being represented right here? What is, what is its representation with and against the presence of law enforcement specifically and wealth as well as that? 
uh, uh, things we didn't have time to get to today, but are definitely extant in this episode. And thanks for listening to the third installment of our Twin Peaks retrospective. We'll be back next week with episode three, Rest in Pain. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.